I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So this is it. If you haven't put your name in the hat for our prize drawing, you have until Tuesday, October 4th, when we'll be selecting the lucky winner of a virtual home energy audit performed by our very own energy expert, Thomas Mills. Head over to our website, click on the contact button, tell us you want to be entered into the contest, provide your first name, and that's it. And while you're there, consider making a donation to the pod. As a nonprofit, we rely heavily on listener contributions. Even a $5 a month donation makes a, a real difference. For those who've been wanting to hear about the promise of oceans as a climate solution, the wait is finally over. This week, we'll be exploring the critical role the oceans perform as you know a climate solution, as well as the toll that climate change is having on them. And while the reality is there's still many unknowns when it comes to the oceans, it's safe to say, you know, if we do what, what we need to to take care of the oceans, we'll continue to have them perform the critical functions that we rely on for everything from our food to our weather. And on the flip side, if we fail to heed Mother Nature's warning, we're headed for a world of hurt and, you know, some pretty catastrophic consequences. So we'll get into the details. Before we go there, Todd, you want to take us through this week's uh, reason for hope? Yes, I do. So electric vehicles are taking off in India faster than Captain Jack Sparrow on the Black Pearl. No, I had to put in a, I had to put in an ocean because we're talking about the ocean today. And uh, that's true. Are we going to talk about pirates much? Do you think today, or is this going to be a little bit of a different? Conversation? I feel like pirates would be a little tangential. Maybe. Oh, they don't really have a lot to do with climate change. I guess. <laughs> I mean, uh, unless but... the pirates are taking over the oil tankers and preventing those from making it to refineries, I feel like then that would be a very relevant climate solution. But I'm going into business. Um, <laughs> but no, electric vehicles are taking off in India. But unlike the US and Europe, uh, they are more of the two wheeled and three wheeled variation mopeds and three wheeled rickshaws. And they're selling these things for like as little as $1,000. So it's affordable. Wow. And that's one of the reasons why this stuff is taking off, right? Indian automakers sold 430,000 electric vehicles in the 12 months that ended this last March, which is more than three times as many as the year earlier. And cars only numbered 18,000 of that 430,000. So you can see that's how telling. many of these mopeds and, and stuff that they're buying there. To kind of put it in perspective, there are only 22 cars per 1,000 people in India, compared with the United States, which, which is 980 cars per 1,000 people. <laughs> so we almost have like, as, we're like one-to-one -one on cars here. Um, now, of course, there is a little caveat here, because three-quarters of India's electricity does come from coal-fired power plants, right? Um, even so, they've they've said that the the electric mopeds are still better even to run off the electricity grid with coal definitely better for Knox, right that's one of the big things that these bikes and everything that they've been driving all these years the pollution the air quality is terrible right. so this is a really huge boon for their air quality their prime minister pledged last year that they're going to get half of their energy from sources other than fossil fuels by 2030 which is 
that's huge. If they if if they can get to that goal, that would be awesome. That'd be massive. Well, and also too, they they export a lot of bikes, a lot of mopeds and stuff to Africa and other countries, and you know, in Asia. So the hope here is that really they'll be just start exporting these electric mopeds and rickshaws, you know, to other places of the world. And uh, you know, when Chelsea and I were in were in Vietnam, they ride a ton of mopeds there. It's just like streets are covered with those things, and cars are pretty few, few and far in between. But so it'd be it'd be huge to get all these bikes to electric. It's something we probably don't focus on here enough, right? I mean, our yeah. tendency is to you know focus on cars for obvious reasons when we talk about you know Europe and and the U.S. and you know other major industrialized countries. And when you consider that ratio you just mentioned of 980 cars per thousand Americans, yeah, um, seems like we need to work on the ratio as much as we do, you know, what kind of car we're driving. But yeah, those rickshaws would do well in like high density cities that totally. they would do great to get people around, especially if you wanted to. I think we've talked about this before about if you had no no car zones and in, in kind of inner cities and stuff that you could use some of this for people to get around would be that'd be huge. Yeah, I think it'd be great. Well. Pivoting to our main topic, our our guest today is Johan Bergenis. Johan is the Senior Vice President of Oceans at the World Wildlife Fund in the U.S. He leads a diverse team and global programming that cuts across things like ocean health, climate resilience, and environmental security. Johan, you know, represents his team and develops global solutions with the United Nations and other multilateral organizations, as well as the private sector and, you know, partnering with civil society groups. Johan holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Iowa, as well as a master's from Georgetown University. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, two children, and their two rescue cats. And we're excited to have him on today. Johan, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. So to start things out, I wanted to ask you, when you think about you know, efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? It's a great question. Um, and I was so excited to get the opportunity to speak with you on a show called Climate Optimists, because one of the reasons why I am so excited to work on oceans issues is the untapped potential of the oceans as a solutions driver, not only to climate change, both mitigation and adaptation, but also to all sorts of food issues, economic development issues, uh, and even issues that has to do with making the world a more peaceful place. So that untapped potential of the oceans to actually have a chance to make sure that we can live sustainably on this planet for many generations to come makes me extremely hopeful about climate and oceans issues. Well, with that intro, I'm excited to get into it. Before we go there, I wanted to ask you just briefly, uh, how did you find your way into this role of protecting oceans? Yeah. You know, I'll be I'm completely honest. I, uh, I am not a biologist or an oceanographer. I've spent many years working on oceans issues, but the reason to why I ended up in oceans is that I've had this weird pull towards very, very difficult and consequential issues. 
And I've been very lucky to find work in those spaces. So I've worked on nuclear nonproliferation. I've worked on crime issues. I've worked on humanitarian technology. And when I started to learn more about oceans and environmental topics many years ago, I realized that the oceans, you know, had this really interesting mix of very, very intractable problems. If we fix them, very game-changing solutions and an amazing group of talented people who are working on it. So I pivoted really, really hard away from traditional national security topics into ocean conservation to see if I can translate some of the lessons that I had learned from from other areas. And so it was the challenge and the opportunity that drove me into this really cool and, and difficult area of work. Yeah, none of the things you mentioned are uh, are simple problems to solve, but uh, I suspect you know when you you know when you solve problems, there's always a, a similar set of, of characteristics and a, and a methodology that you apply, and and you know when you fine tune that, you could take it anywhere. Exactly. Well, with that, let's let's cover some of the basics for folks. You know, obviously, the ocean has, as most folks know, a, you know, huge ability to absorb carbon. You know, kind of a carbon sink. How does that how does that actually work? Can you kind of talk us through the the basics, if you will? Yeah, yeah. So the bottom line is that the oceans decides how the weather works. So depending on the oceans, we can have rains, we can have heat, we can have storms, we can have all sorts of weather patterns. And what we are experiencing now. And you said it yourself, that carbon sink is enormous. One third of all carbon dioxide is stored, is stored in the oceans. 90% of the excess heat uh, is stored in the ocean. And what is happening now is that we are at that breaking point. That when dynamics in the oceans, currents and acidity and heat are disturbed, it causes these other weather patterns to go on steroids. So that's why we're seeing the weather being more intense in storms and floods and even fires. You disturb the system that regulates the weather, it's going to reach us in all corners of the world. And we are seeing that today, uh, literally on every continent. So that regulatory system is under distress. uh, And that's why we are seeing these climate change issues uh, on the broader world. So, So in other words, given the oceans, you know, uh, role in in regulating weather as it's being sort of pushed, you're seeing you know things normal patterns being disrupted as well as the severity of given events being larger. Exactly, and and that's that's why not only mitigation efforts are so important, but also adaptation issues because communities, countries, or regions might be used or comfortable with a certain uh, cycle of flooding, for example. But now we are seeing it much more uh, frequently. So that ability to prepare for the next one or recover from the previous one is disturbed. Or we are seeing a much higher level of intensity for flooding where where traditions and capacity and resources simply are not resilient enough. And so there's a ton of work to to be done in making sure that we build that capacity and that resiliency on the adaptation side. And there are nature-based solutions and ocean solutions to that, which I'm sure we'll get to. Given the ocean's criticality as, as a carbon sink, how much more sort of capacity does it have? Or how, or how is its capacity to absorb carbon changing with time? Right. That's another thing 
with the oceans. There's a whole lot we know about the oceans, but there's even more that we don't know. There is not conclusive scientific evidence right now of exactly when too much heat, too much carbon, too much acidity is going to actually have a breaking point on the oceans. And it's really scary to not know that because we as a society, as a species, are not doing super well in managing the current stressors. If there were to be a cataclysmic change as a result of a breaking point, we might be in a world of hurt very, very quickly. And, and, and that is just not something that we know right now. And so I usually refer to the oceans as the, the great unknown, not only because we haven't explored it as much as we have, but scientifically, although we know it not, there's so much that we don't know. So, you know, based on what you're saying, I'm almost envisioning that there's, you know, there's a tipping point out there, but we, we're effectively moving towards it without knowing where it is. So that, Correct. that's one of the big risks in all of this. Correct. And I would just I would just add, Jason, to make sure that your audience um, gets the fair shake here. There are things that we do know, of course. We know that corals may be beyond uh, saving by 2050 on the current trajectory. We know that climate-driven fish migration is happening right now. And in 8 to 10 years, 23% of all fish inside of territorial waters have moved to a different territorial water. So those are the things that we know. Uh, but the thing is, we, it can speed up, it can slow down. And the consequences of those are very, very scary. It would be fools not to deal with this seriously, because we know the devastating consequences on everything from climate to conflict over food as a result of cli climate change. Indeed. Well, and... You know, we, we're talking here about a lot of the impacts that, as the oceans change, it will have on us or having on us. You mentioned coral die-off. Are there other things that, you know, having to absorb all this carbon is is doing to the ocean? Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. It allows me to, to open up the purview a little bit. There are, there are two critical components and threats to the oceans today, and it's climate change, and we've talked about that, and then it is overfishing or unsustainable fishing or illegal fishing. And there's a very important link between the fish in the oceans and the food that it provides to billions of people and climate change. And the link is that climate-driven components, many of which you mentioned on heat and acidification and currents, are going to move vast amount of fish stocks from one place in the ocean to the other, which will result in future fish-rich places and future fish poor places. And what's going to happen when that happens is that there's going to be entire communities, countries, and regions that are going to have a fundamentally different food supply. And what I usually say when people are hungry and when they are out of a job, societal instability and conflict happens. And, and, and what we are going to see here as a direct result of climate is that that fish migration is going to cause all sorts of instability and conflict. And we've already seen a massive amount of, of disputes and even militarized conflict over fish. And if we don't get this issue underway and start to understand where the fish is going, how the fish is moving, what capacity we can bring, we are not only going to find ourselves in a climate crisis, we are going to find ourselves in a food crisis and in a conflict crisis. So the link between climate, fish, food, 
And societal stability and conflict is a very, very important link that I think a lot of people are not talking about and that we are trying to to elevate on the international agenda. Well, I, I like the way you laid that out because I think it is important for people to not just focus on sort of the, the climate impact itself, but the follow-on consequences of that, you know, letting things play out to understand what will be the true impact to, you know, to us. Um, so I could see in the scenario you're talking about island nations being particularly vulnerable, you know, as they probably rely more on, on fish. Mm-hmm. What's, I mean, what's happening on that front to sort of deal with the, the fish migration side of things, I guess, from a diplomacy perspective? Well, so first of all, I think you nailed it, Jason. There's nothing more important than to think about the oceans in the context of everything else and really play it out that if we don't do something now, what happens to you and to me and to communities and countries all over the world? So it's a really nice way of, of framing it. And I would expand, you're talking about island nations, you're right. I would expand sort of to coastal communities more broadly in terms of dependencies okay. and protection from the oceans on livelihoods and food. So let's talk about a little bit what's happening in the solution space on that issue. The United States uh, actually over the last number of years have really started to take this issue more seriously. Uh, Congress have provided more legislative authority and resources to understand the negative consequences of food insecure nations, not only to island nations far away, but how that impacts the United States who imports a lot of seafood. And um, there's also more diplomatic pressure to be sourcing seafood more sustainably. Uh, The private sector that we spend a lot of time working with are uh, putting in more and more robust processes to understand how sustainability works for particular stocks and different fisheries. And, And that's part of the story. But what we need to give government, private sector and NGOs more than anything is time. And what we are trying to work on here is to let deliver the science on climate and fish stock migration that gives organizations like ours, government and the private sector, maybe five, 10 years to retool where we need to put conservation tools, where we need to put maritime security tools, where we need to put alternative livelihood tools so we can get ahead, you know, disasters and really plan for the future. So that combination of science, capacity and implementation is really important. And I think the pieces are coming together, which is, again, why there's so much to be hopeful here. Well, and and I guess, you know, that leads to sort of the the question about the solutions, which you're, you're talking about a little bit already. If we look at the ocean itself and, and this idea that we want to be a good steward and protect it, what can be done to help kind of blunt the impact of higher, you know, acidification and, and warmer waters on right. everything that lives in the oceans? Right. So, you know, some of that stuff is a pure mitigation and transitioning away from fossil fuels. And of course, everyone knows by now that there was a huge legislative win for the climate and ocean community in the, um, uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act that puts more resources towards this climate transition. That's like the mitigation play from a societal basis. But the other beautiful thing about nature is that she's really good at taking care of herself and taking care of the world, so long as you give her a little bit of space to just do her job. And 
there are these ocean nature-based solutions that they can include everything from mangroves to seaweed to kelp, even oysters have um, mitigation and adaptation properties that if you just let it flourish, they will do a ton of work for you on mitigation and adaptation. So let me give you some amazing stats that really brings that home. So mangroves, for example, which is a very stinky, bug-infested, snake-ridden forest at the water's edge, Uh, they have this amazing ability to absorb carbon and store it. And they are storing up to 10 times more carbon than tropical forest. And if we can just use them as the not only storage, but also protection for local communities, we have a ton to win in that space. And so that's a nature-based solution that we need to protect, that we need to restore, and that we need to nurture and make sure that it's part of coastal life and coastal communities. And we can store multiple gigatons of carbon by providing a space for nature to nurture mangroves and other blue forests. So just let it be, be smart on policy, and we will repair ourselves over time. So mangroves is a great example on the mitigation side. And uh, it sounds like you're maybe not the kind of person who wants to swim in a mangrove, but it it uh, it sounds like it's a pretty powerful tool for for the for the ocean, both on mitigation and adaptation. And it sounds like the biggest key is sort of getting out of the way, you know, and letting Mother Nature do its thing. And I'm assuming as well, there's probably some amount of kind of rehabilitating areas where maybe you had mangrove forests. And no longer somewhat, you know, similar to what we would do on land, right? You would conserve the existing forests, protect it, and then you would restore areas. I mean, you, I think you should be running the oceans program at WWF because you're very educated in how you create that sustainability. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll add a few things, Jason, to your other, you know, other excellent explanation. But we are active on on mangroves and other nature-based solutions work all over the world, but. There are four countries that we are really focusing on right now in our mangroves work, and it's Mexico, Madagascar, Fiji, and Colombia. And the way that you go about building a robust program is that you you have enabling conditions. You need a policy or a regulatory framework in place that says that these are places that we are going to protect and that we are going to keep pristine and not uh, have industry or other actors you know, basically rip out the mangroves from the coastal area. And then, of course, you need to engage communities and make sure that you have a deep buy-in from the communities and the countries that depend on them. And there are local policy and engagements that you will you will engage in in that front. Of course, as you say, restoration is important. You plant, you nurture, you manage. Um, and if you, if you are lucky you really build a whole of society opportunity for these mangroves forests and other blue forests to really to really grow. And there are so many economic incentives to do this. Um, mangroves over what we call gray infrastructure, you know, cement walls basically, are 10 times more effective to absorb storm surges and sea level rise. So there's no real economic model that suggests that, you know, gray infrastructure over mangroves is better. So clearly, based on what you're saying, mangroves are, are a win-win. Of the other kind of solutions you mentioned a few minutes ago, are there others that sort of have those kind of multiple benefits, right? 
there are a couple, but the one that sticks out for me and where WWF is leading some really important and impactful work is around seaweed. Again, seaweed is a, you know, it's a climate mitigation uh, opportunity, but it has some other really important characteristics that I think should incentivize us and those who are interested in the oceans and food and livelihoods and energy to really think about a big play for seaweed. You can eat seaweed, you can generate biofuels with seaweed, livelihoods uh, will be uh, benefited from seaweed. And so there are so many opportunities in that space to innovate, to provide uh, capital and to monetize a very healthy and productive uh, seaweed and environment. And so that would be the other area that I would um, I would highlight. But also, if we're really going to get this right, we need to integrate some of these approaches, right? Like seaweed and mangroves and kelp uh, and uh, fishing uh, spawning areas are all interconnected, right? And right. so uh, you can't, unfortunately, just double down on one species or one commodity or one coastal area. You really really have to think systematically. And that's why the program that we run here on Oceans at WWF, we are focusing on a set of specific seascapes or areas or countries where we are going to try to deploy a more holistic solution. And then, as, as we talked about a, a little a bit ago, see if we can replicate and scale that model to other countries and, and, and areas of the world. So. Uh, that's uh, that's where I am excited about the about the future of ocean conservation to integrate and leverage many different opportunities. So, Johan, definitely leaving me, you know, excited here as we we talk about solutions. Obviously, we need to get it right, and and there's sort of a you know very kind of scary future if we don't. But as individuals, if this is something that that resonates and and people feel passionately about. How can they get involved? How can we help as individuals ensure these these solutions are are deployed and deployed successfully? Great and tough questions. Um, let me try to answer it in a very pragmatic way, and then maybe in a slightly high level way. Um, if you like to eat fish, uh, especially salmon, um, it is very likely that you are eating salmon from Bristol Bay up in Alaska that produces about 570 million meals every year to Americans and to people around the world. If that is part of your diet, help us protect Bristol Bay. And there's plenty of opportunity to do so. Um, But if you care about uh, broader climate issues and you see the impact from climate and climate change on your personal insurance premium or where you live or how you live, try to understand who are ocean's champions in the private sector, in the public sector, and in the political sector, and support those people and organizations in whatever way you see fit, with time, financial resources, your voice, or your volunteer uh, opportunities. Or change your career and become an ocean conservation champion, and we will invite you with warm arms here at WWF and throughout the community. <laughs> I like it, and and you know we just had a, an episode focused on uh, deploying capital uh, in the climate space, and had a similar suggestion that you know what if you have that ability and and interest, come work in the climate space. There's definitely definitely more help that's needed. Yeah. So Johan, I 
we've covered a lot of ground here, and clearly we could spend uh, hours talking about the oceans, given given the the complexities. And so, you know, I think at a very high level, what I'm hearing is there are great nature based solutions out there, things like mangrove and and seaweed, et cetera. And you know, to some degree, the biggest thing we can do is get out of the way to let those those natural systems kick in. And not only can these things help with adaptation, let's say, to climate change or mitigation, which, but it sounds like there are other benefits above and beyond that that have the potential to be realized. You know, am, am I missing anything? Is there anything else that, you know, folks who are thinking about the oceans and these solutions should know about? Well, you know, I think the climate mitigation benefits of some of the things we've talked about is it's amazing and undervalued but perhaps even more undervalued is the human uh, opportunities and consequences of a well-functioning nature and if you stick with the mangroves example around the world mangroves actually protect 65 billion dollars in property and societal infrastructure huge impact on people's life if your road your hospital, your apartment, uh, or wherever you live is no longer protected from the great force that is the ocean. So that's a very human thing. We want shelter and we want well-functioning societies. But um, but unless we have well-functioning mangroves or ecosystem, that will not happen. Um, and the other thing at an even more fundamental level is that about 15 or more million people are physically protected by mangroves and other nature-based solutions to basically be able to not be washed away. Uh, And there are real consequences of inaction and there are real positive consequences on action as well. And so I think that is important to remember here. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it it reminds me of sort of that, you know, uh, that saying of like, you take care of nature and it takes care of us. And it it sounds like in this case, it couldn't be more true. well, Jochen, I, I appreciate you coming on to share your wealth of knowledge on oceans and, and you know, obviously highlight the seriousness of the situation we're facing and the, and the need for swift action, but also, you know, a host of things to be optimistic about if we can get out there and, and get it right. So, you know, thanks for coming on and talking about the, the exciting world of oceans. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me and uh, great talking to you. So Todd, what insights did you take away from the interview with uh, Johan? Well, I was surprised that the WWF, from my whole taste, was now into oceans and wildlife protection. Every time I kept hearing <laughs> that, I was like, brother, I thought I was, you know, Hulk Hogan. Maybe they should get some of those old wrestlers to do some ads for them. That would Climate be advocacy? Yeah. They come on and just do like, brother, you know, just go into that whole feel, you know, that'd be sweet. Maybe a sort of a dual like motivation and, and like intimidation campaign at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Just like where they talk to the camera and like, you know, they're going to come body slam somebody if you don't donate to the WWF. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was a, it was really telling, obviously. And I agree with what he said about there being a lot of untapped potential. It was it was also with untapped potential kind of contrasted with the unknown about how we're impacting things. And we kind of don't really know. We don't really know where those tipping points are. So that's scary. You know, the, one of the things he said that, that struck me was that in the last eight to 10 years, you know, 23% of all, all fish have moved to different territories. 
it was concerning. I, th- I thought that was very concerning. And But learning about the mangroves and kelp and seaweed and some of the importance of that stuff was really cool. One of the stats I found that I thought was awesome, he was talking about how the mangroves can really protect from flooding. And I was looking at one of the, the numbers and that a wave passing through 100 meters of mangrove forest can lose two-thirds of its energy. So that's wow, pretty significant, right? I mean, that's a great natural barrier to have. What were some of your takeaways? You know, there was sort of like a lot of the topics we have, this, this you know, kind of dual sort of message of, of doom if we don't, you know, get our shit together. And then this sort of contrasting, you know, vision of hope if we basically do the things that we need to you know, one thing I don't think I fully appreciated and did some research on independently to kind of wrap my head around was we hear a lot about ocean acidification. And then, you know, we were talking in this interview about the ocean absorbing carbon via these these plants, right? Through right. through photosynthesis. And and I guess it's worth pointing out that there really are sort of two carbon cycles in the ocean. There's what they call kind of the the solubility cycle or the physical carbon pump. And that's where you have that, you know, CO2 from the atmosphere that's making its way into the water, turning into what's called, you know, carbonic acid, which leads to acidification. And then obviously has all sorts of, creates all sorts of problems for the organisms live in the ocean. And then you have this, this separate pump, which is really the one that we're focusing on and the one that has so much potential, which is, you know, the biological one, right? Where you have everything from mangroves he talked about to things like seagrass and coral and even like phytoplankton, where all of them are using photosynthesis Mm -hmm. and absorbing that CO2 and obviously creating all sorts of additional benefits, right? Aside from just being a carbon sink, you know, it was interesting to, to learn that like, you know, you really have phytoplankton which are kind of at the bottom of the food chain in the ocean each using you know a little bit of co2 to let's say build some of their structure and then and then you know the zooplankton eat the phytoplankton the fish eat the zooplankton you know and then as these organisms either die or you know release their waste that all sinks to the bottom of the ocean and you know that's how we ended up with fossil fuels down there in the first place right and right the, yeah the ocean's literally sinking this stuff down to the bottom. That's cool. You talk about it being a pump. I think that's a good, that's a good analogy. It, it's kind of like a big forest in of itself, right? The, the ocean is, I mean, it's a big, you know, giant, giant forest in its own right. It performs kind of a similar function anyway. Yeah. These, you know, blue forests, as we talk about them are, are clearly, you know, something to be optimistic about. And, and if we, if we do things correctly, you know, there's these sort of all these co-benefits, right? It's not just that they help with carbon, it's that they protect these communities, you know, preserving fisheries and even serving as a a source of food, right? I was, I was thinking about his comment about, you know, seaweed and, and sort of this fledgling industry where they're using in restaurants, but also in things like potential protein supplements. And I thought, Mm. you know, if you're eating seaweed, you should almost get like, you know, credits, right? Because that seaweed's removing carbon from the atmosphere. And by eating it, you're helping, you know, drive that market and, you know, more of those seaweed farms being put in place. Logan eats seaweed. My five-year-old. Is he a big fan? seaweed. Yeah. When he doesn't do what we want, we just feed him seaweed that night. <laughs> um, no, he, he eats those, we eat those seaweed snacks. They're pretty good. He, he mows through those things, man. 
tell him that's his, you know, contribution to helping, you know, stop climate change. A lot of what he was talking about, especially about the economics of this thing and investment and capital, just all of that process of getting this moving to protect these areas and restore them. I, th- I think a lot of this goes back to a price on carbon. You know, those mangroves, if you got a price on carbon, those mangrove forests get pretty valuable yeah. monetarily. So it seems like it would it would have an impact on a lot of this if there's a price on carbon. I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, he did, he mentioned sort of those underlying policy mechanisms and yeah. and getting that stuff right is really important because once you fix sort of that foundation, then, you know, we see the market corrects, it adapts and and that's really what we need, our market forces pushing in the direction of conservation and restoration of, of these marine habitats. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, clearly not only are they valuable for climate change, but they're valuable for food for much of the world, right? And, yeah. you know, he, he obviously mentioned too those, those critical linkages, right? You know, we start damaging and seeing changes to the fisheries because of climate change and overfishing that leads to food instability, and you follow that thread, then all of a sudden you're talking about geopolitical instability, things like war, you know, militarized conflict over, you know, over the oceans. And, and none of us want to see that. I mean, yeah, you know, we have all this technology and we like to think of ourselves, I think, as being so advanced. But if you think of that narrative that you just talked about right there, it's a similar problem probably to what people had to fight about thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah, we're not immune to it, no matter how, yeah. you know. How smart we think we are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess that's that's a good segue to what can all of us do to, yeah. to help with this critical work. And our first call to action for this week is to consider supporting the World Wildlife Fund. You know, they're doing critical work to help, you know, realize the, the potential of our oceans as natural climate solutions, you know, and, and, and protecting ecosystems that we rely upon. And yeah, suggests that you head over to their website and, and consider making a donation. And then, you know, I think Todd, you can relate to this one, but I think the other big opportunity we have, the other call to action for this week is getting involved, you know, here in the U.S. in our upcoming election. How things turn out in this election cycle is going to have a huge impact on oceans and, and climate more broadly. We've got obviously this narrow window in which to respond. And we need even more aggressive climate policies in place to close the gap, not to scare people into action, but this is a big opportunity. You know, go out, volunteer. If you can't volunteer, consider a donation. We we need to get the right people elected to support, you know, these climate solutions to ensure that, you know, we have a, a livable planet down the road. Yeah. Any additional thoughts there, Todd? Well, yeah. I mean, we're, we're living in a time and where the interest of a few are dictating the lives of, of the many in, in a lot of cases. And if you don't have, you know, the, the correct representation in those, in those spots, we're going to be in a, in a world of hurt. And it's really hard to get the interest of the many uh, to be reflected in those few. So it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, indeed. Well, get out there, get involved again, consider a, a donation to the World Wildlife Fund and, and all the great work they're doing. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for, for tuning in. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the topic of hydrogen. I know we've mentioned it numerous times here and you know, finally decided it was time to, to dig in and give it a fair shake. So 
come back and, and listen to, to next week's episode. Uh, Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Sewers Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.